Have you ever seen a corpse as a defendant in a court of law? If, if that were to happen, and then the judgment were rendered, what would the corpse say? Or what would the corpse feel? I submit to you that that corpse would say nothing and would feel nothing. When you're dead, the law cannot extract punishment on you, for the law is no longer binding on you. And this will be the subject of the paragraph that we study this morning in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. But before we can get into that passage, it would serve us well, and we're going to have to work at this a little bit. It would serve us well to see that Paul's teaching has been leading up to this point from the very beginning of the letter. We're already in Romans chapter 1. I want to remind you of what has already gone on. Paul was anxious to preach the gospel to the church at Rome. Verse 15 of chapter 1. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's already told them that he knows that they are Christians. They're saints. They have been Uh, redeemed of the Lord, and he wants to preach the Gospel to them. And the reason that he wants to do this, among many, is that the Gospel is God's power to bring about salvation for everyone who believes. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Also, the Gospel properly understood and embraced results in the righteousness that God's justice requires. The Gospel results in the righteousness that God's justice requires. Look at verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he is anxious to preach the gospel because the gospel saves and the gospel brings about righteousness in the lives of God's people. This is the reason he's eager to preach the gospel. As a contrast to that, he tells us in verse 18 that God's wrath is coming. It's poured out against those who dwell in unrighteousness and ungodliness. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's letting us know, I want to preach the gospel to you because the gospel brings about the righteousness that quells the wrath of God. Does that make sense? This is why he wants to preach. He wants the wrath of God not to be poured out on them. They are ungodly and unrighteous. He's about to prove that from chapter 2 and chapter 3. And we'll just shorthand it at chapter 3 and verse 10. Take a look there. Chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, will you say it with me? None is righteous. How many? No, not one. That's Romans 3.10. He's told us he wants to preach the Gospel because it saves. It produces righteousness. God's wrath demands righteousness, and y'all aren't righteous. Look at chapter 3 and verse 19. 
all stand guilty before God. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be, it says, held accountable to God. I prefer the word stand guilty before God. The whole world stands guilty before God. This is what He is proving to us throughout. But, there's a great contrast that takes place after He makes this proclamation that all of us are sinners and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against us. The, the but is found in chapter 3 in verses 21 and 22 and following. But in this, we're going to recognize that God provides the righteousness that the law cannot. God provides the righteousness that the law cannot. Verse 20, uh, 21, excuse me. 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, how? Through faith. In whom? Jesus Christ. Who is this for? For all who believe, for there is no distinction. God provides righteousness to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in faith. Understands that they're sinners. That their sin deserves the wrath of God. But that Jesus took that wrath and provided for them righteousness. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Righteousness that comes apart from the law. Look down at verse 26. God makes righteous all who have faith in Jesus. Verse 26. It was to show His, God's righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now justification, you remember, just for review, is the removal of our sin and the removal of the guilt of our sin and the removal of the punishment of our sin. There's the removal of sin and the addition of righteousness. God provides a righteousness for us. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. He's progressing in his argument and explaining why he was so eager to preach the Gospel to these believers at Rome. Because they needed this righteousness that is only provided through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 4, Paul describes in further detail God's work of justification through faith. That's very clear. In Romans chapter 5, he cites for us the one-for-all principle behind justification by faith. He cites the one-for-all basis of the Gospel as the sin of Adam. Remember him in the garden? As the sin of Adam is attributed to all who are born in the world, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is attributed to all who believe. This is what he teaches us in chapter 5. As a secondary and very important element of what he's teaching us in chapter 5 is that he, he begins this important contrast between masters. He tells us in Romans chapter 5 that sin and death reign over all who have not been born again. Sin and death reign over all who have not been born again and that sin results in condemnation. This is the logic that he's following. Sin results in condemnation. Sin and death reign over all who are not born again. 
But those who receive the free gift of God's grace, we find that in chapter 5 and verse 17, reign in life through Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at Romans 5.17. Those who receive the free gift of God's grace reign in life through Jesus Christ. Verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, those will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What he does as he concludes chapter 5 is he makes something along the uh, statement along these lines. This will be on the screen for you. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Where sin used to reign, grace reigned in its place, displaying itself in righteousness, and resulting in eternal life. That is a very important statement. But much more important than the statement are the words of God. So let us read what God says. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, in the same way as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's teaching us is the same way that sin reigned over us and and it it, it had this, this dominion of death that was resulting, the same way that that happened when we were under sin, where that where the law came in, sin, instead of being squished down, actually expanded. It it increased, but where sin increased, God brought forth an abundance. A not a measure for measure, but an abounding for measure of his grace to deal with that sin. And not only to deal with that sin, but to provide not only the righteousness required for eternal life, but the righteousness that must be demonstrated in this life. Because righteousness yields eternal life. Righteousness yields eternal life. Does my righteousness yield eternal life? I don't have any righteousness. All my righteousnesses are as a filthy rag. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says they're just dung. I recognize that they're dung. I want to gain that which is far greater. It's the righteousness of Christ. Justification is clear in this. As we come to Romans chapter 6, Paul starts to answer some potential objections to a reign of unmerited favor. He starts to answer some objections to a reign of unmerited favor. A rulership, a dominion, a king that gives you favor that you don't deserve. Won't people feel free to sin without restraint if they already have a secure standing of favor with God? That's the the question that he proposes. Paul's argument states that all believers have died to sin. No, it won't work that way. It doesn't work that the reign of grace results in more sin. The reign of grace results in righteousness. You 
that have been born again have died to sin. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And the answer is, we can't live in sin. We've died to sin. He goes on and he tells us that believers have been set free from sin in verse 7. He says the same thing in verse 18, that believers have been set free from sin. In verse 17, we have become obedient from the heart. Look what it says. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He tells us that this reign of grace makes us obedient from the heart. That we have become slaves of righteousness in verse 18. And have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. And not only are we slaves of Righteousness, we are slaves of God. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Friends, God has not set us free to nothingness or to ourselves. He has set us free from ourselves and from nothingness. He has made us captive to Him. We have become slaves of God through this reign of grace. This is glorious. To want God's bonds thrown asunder from us is the exact work of the unregenerate person. To not want God to be your master is to not know who He is. And to not know who you are. And to not know what you deserve. We have been set free from our sin. We've been set free from death. We've been set free from bondage. We've been set free from our flesh. And we have been placed under the glorious rulership of Almighty God, very specifically in the person of the Spirit of God who dwells within us, who ushers in abounding grace for every circumstance that we ever face in any second of our lives. This is good news, brothers and sisters. The flesh is not the solution to our problems. Our sin is not the solution to our problems. God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ is the solution. This is because God issues His grace which is reigning, the reigning authority over the believer. Look at chapter 6 and verse 14. For sin will not, doesn't say should not, sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Ooh. Why did he just enter in the law here? That was a seed thought preparing us for chapter 7. That's what he just did. He let us know there's, there's a relationship between sin and death and the law. We'll talk about that in a moment. Rather than sin increasing under the elements of our flesh and under the dominion of the law, Grace 
addresses the breach caused by sin and provides the the necessary, or the means necessary, to demonstrate God's righteous standard. Chew on that one for just a moment, if you would. Our condition has changed. Rather than sin increasing under the elements of our flesh and under the dominion of the law, grace addresses the breach caused by sin and provides the means necessary to demonstrate God's righteous standard. And so the believer truly walks in newness of life, chapter 6 and verse 4. Now, Romans chapter 5 demonstrated that there is a close relationship between sin and death. He kept going back and forth in Romans chapter 5 about that relationship of sin and death. In Romans chapters 6 and 7, Paul will demonstrate that there is also a relationship between sin and the law, but it is not the relationship that most would expect. We would think, as normal humans, that the law comes in and it suppresses sin. The law comes in and it restrains sin. The law comes in and righteousness is a result because we now see the right way to go. But that is not how our Bible describes what the law accomplishes in us. Let us see this. Rather than deter sin, the law increases the trespass. Chapter 5 and verse 20, we already read it. In chapter 7, take a look there at verse 5. The law aroused our sinful passions. Look what it says. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law arouses sinful passions. Look at chapter 7 and verse 8. The law provides opportunity to covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So the law provides opportunity to covet. In verse 9, the law awakens sin. Look at what it says. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So, the law awakens sin. The law produces death in verses 9 and 10. Sin came alive and I died. Verse 10, the very commitment that promised life proved to be what? Death to me. There's a relationship between law and sin, sin and law. It's just much different than we would expect. In verse 13, what we'll notice is this. The law reveals sin and shows the utter sinfulness of sin. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We've gone through some exercises here. And you might have to go back and review some of what we've discussed. And I would recommend, if you're not following to this point, that you go back and review these thoughts. What Paul is doing here is he's, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's about to apply 
the same language to the law that he just applied to sin. Ooh, very interesting. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul is about to apply the same language that he applied to sin. He's going to apply it to the law in chapter 7. In chapter 6 and verse 2, we died to sin. In chapter 7 and verse 4, we died to the law. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Same expression exactly. In chapter 6 and verse 7, we were set free from sin. And in chapter 7 and verse 6, we were released from the law. Verse 6 of chapter 7. Look what it says. But now we are released from the law. Now listen to this. The result of being united with Christ's death, which we saw in chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, ended in this statement at the end of verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing. He uses the Greek term katargeo. Katargeo. He uses the exact same Greek word in chapter 7 and in verse 6 where he tells us that we've been released from the law. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Ketirgeo. And he says in chapter 7 and verse 6 that we have been released. We have been ketirgeo. We have been brought, the, the law has been brought to nothing as a reigning influence. He uses the same exact terminology that he used about the severance of sin that he's using about the severance of the law. He is talking about something greatly significant. He's already laid the groundwork for it. Paul's Gospel, listen to this, Paul's Gospel teaches us that man's flesh does not produce righteousness. And the law of God, the law of Moses, does not produce righteousness. Rather, the flesh produces impurity and lawlessness and the law increases trespass. This is what he's taught us. Thomas Schreiner made this statement in Romans chapter 7. He explains, Paul explains, how the incursion, the entrance of the law, stimulates sin so that it is clear that the law does not offer the solution to the problem of sin. The law does not produce the problem or uh, produce a solution to the problem of sin. But wait. <laughs> wait a second. Does the law simply vanish away? Poof! It's gone. Is that how it works? If so, if the law just ceases at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and no longer has any impact whatsoever, if that's case, the case, how can a person trespass or transgress? How can there be a record of sin without something to violate? So we must understand that the law doesn't disappear at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says it is finished. It doesn't go away 
It doesn't vanish. The reign of the law doesn't simply come to an end. Listen carefully, ready? It is through death that the binding authority of the law is broken. It is through death that the binding authority of the law is broken. Romans chapter 7 could be outlined like this. Number one, in verses 1 through 6, believers, through union with Jesus Christ, have been released from the reign of the law. In verses 7 through 12, is the law sinful? Question mark. Verses 13 through 25, is the law the cause of death? Question mark. You could outline chapter 7 this way, and I think that's how we'll look at it. The answer to both of those questions is an obvious no, for the text answers the question. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? That's the question. And what's his answer? Oh, wait a second. We've seen this before. By no means. Meganoita. Let it never be. Or as your King James Bible says, God forbid. Is the law sin? No! Alright. What about the other question? What about is the law the cause of death? Verse 12 and verse 13. Listen to what it says. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and... What does that last word say? Oh, yeah, that wasn't very convincing. What does that last word say? The, the commandment is what? Good. What is it? Good. The commandment is what? Good. You need to believe that. I need to believe that. True gospel churches do not say the law has no place. The law is very important to the gospel church. The law is good. We just have to understand what it can and can't do. What it must and must not do. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? That's the question. Oh, a familiar expression. By no means. Not on your life. No way. The law is not what causes death. Sin causes death. The law reveals my sin. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 3, just the beginning of the verse, is an excellent summation of this portion of the argument. For God has done what the law, very important words, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. All right, that was the introduction. Chapter 7, let's read verses 1 through 6. It actually is not going to take us very long because we have the background. This text is very much self-explanatory unless you start making it try to say something it doesn't intend to say. Please hear what I just said. This text is very self-explanatory unless you want to start trying to make it say something that it's not intended to say about marriage. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of 
marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not with the old way of the written code. Well, first of all, we notice death ends the lordship of the law. We see that in verses 1-3. through Death ends the lordship of the law. And he starts this by saying, do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, he is letting them know that this is an accepted reality. That everyone knows that when a person dies, you can say anything you want. You can say, oh, you're guilty of X, Y, and Z. Here's your sentence. But you're in the tomb. What... What is that going to accomplish? Don't you know if you're dead, the law can't judge you anymore? Don't you know that no one can hold you accountable to the law after you're dead? It's, it's done. You, you can't violate it anymore. It, it's done. Not binding any longer. But it's not just about it not being binding. It's very specific wording he uses. The law... Don't, don't you know that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives, only as long as he lives? The word binding is curio. Curio. You hear curios in there? Curios. Curios is Lord. Lord. The law is Lord over you only as long as you live. This uh, term is translated in the King James. Don't you know that the law has dominion over you only as long as you live? Or in the New American Standard, I don't prefer this one as much. That the law has jurisdiction over you. That kind of seems like, it kind of weakens it a little bit to me. I, I want to say lordship. Dominion is a good word. But let's just go for the gold. Don't you know that the law is lord over you only while you live? Oh. Well, I is alive. Well, have you been united together with Jesus Christ? Have you been crucified with Christ? Has your life been uh, um, placed into His? He's already taught us about this in chapter 6. And now He's applying it not just to sin and death, but now He's applying this concept to the law that we have died with Christ And therefore, the law doesn't lord over us any longer. And the way he does this now is he uses an illustration of marriage. Some take this to be an allegory and have to make all the details speak to something. And I believe that when that happens, they start to make a lot of complications. And sometimes they try to answer questions about marriage that this text doesn't provide. 
I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to give us an illustration of the concept that the law is only Lord over someone while, they're, while there's life. And when there's a, a death, that law is no longer binding. He uses the word in chapter 2, excuse me, cha- uh, verse 2 of chapter 7, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband. Bound. The word there is deo. Tied together. A woman is, a wife is tied to her husband while he lives. However, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Released is, the literal wording is, released from the law regarding her husband. In other words, when your hubby dies, you're not, you're not under that marriage covenant any longer. And the idea is you can then be married to another. It's not just one directional. It's not just the wife toward the husband. It's the husband toward the wife. If your wife dies, you are not bound by the law of marriage. And you can marry another. That's the concept. He's illustrating with the severing of the law. He uses the word released. Released from the law of marriage. This same word is used in Romans 3.3. It's translated nullify. It's used in chapter 4 and verse 14. And he uses the word void. Void. Same Greek word. In chapter 6 and verse 6, brought to nothing. Brought to nothing. When when he says you're released from the law, it means it doesn't have a strangle on you anymore. Before her husband dies, if she is joined to another man, she will be called an adulteress. Why? Because the law is still binding. You actually could call her a polygamist, right? If she leaves one, or, or her husband's still alive, she has this marriage covenant, and then she goes and marries another person. Now she's married to two people. It's a, you have a binding covenant until death is the concept. The law is still binding. But, it says, if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Free. Here's the Greek term. Eleutheros. It was used in John chapter 8 and verse 26 by the Lord Jesus when He said this, So if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Free. Like really free. Like free to the nth degree free. Really, really, really free. Paul just used the same word in Romans chapter 6 and in verse 20. Look there please with me. For when you were slaves of sin, you were what? Free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't do any of it. (laughs) You were free from righteousness. You are released. You are not righteous in any way, shape, or form. If after her husband dies, she marries another man, she will not be charged as a polygamist or an adulteress. Why? The law of marriage is not binding upon death of one of the marriage partners. The illustration makes two points. Okay, This is what we have to get out of this. Two points. Death ends the law's demands upon a person. Got that one? Death ends the law's demands upon a person. Secondly, when that relationship ends, a new relationship can begin. And he's about to introduce us to that change of relationships from bound to the law 
to married to another. You're going to see that in verse 4. So the second concept that we have to understand from this passage is this. Believers have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. So we have a severing of the law, right? Death brings about the end of the lordship of the law. You have also died to the law. How? How did that happen? Through the body of Christ. In other words, when Christ fulfilled the law, died in your place, was raised in uh, resurrection power, confirming that He is the Son of God in glory. We're clear about that from chapter 1 and verse 4. When that happened, and you came to faith in Christ, you died with Him, and the mastery of the law is gone. The lordship of the law is gone. And this happened, verse, in the middle of verse 4, so that you may belong to another. That you may belong. This is the same wording that he uses in verse 3 about go, uh, marrying another. Marrying another. So what he's telling us is this. Not only does the law die, the law's uh, lordship over us dies at the point that, that we die, but then we are set free to marry, involve ourselves, engage in, be bound together with Christ. So we leave one relationship and we enter a new one. He's giving us this clarity. And who is this one that we are entering into covenant with so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead? Wow. All right. Raised from the dead. This lets us know that this union is indissolvable. It's eternal. How do I know? Well, look at chapter 6 and verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, what does it say? Will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. And we have been united with Him. Death has no dominion any longer. This relationship is indissolvable. This relationship is eternal. We have left an impermanent relationship to enter into a permanent relationship. And why is this so? Why did God do this? That you and that I might bear fruit to God. Look at the end of verse five, uh, verse 4. In order that you may bear fruit for God. Our union with Jesus Christ results in fruitfulness. Our union with Jesus Christ results in fruitfulness. Bearing fruit for God. Whoever you are, wherever you are, listening, watching, or sitting in, this, in the presence of this time of worship of God through His Word. My friend, if you say you have turned from your sin and you have turned to Jesus Christ as your Savior and you do not see evidence of God's love God's peace, God's joy, God's long-suffering, God's gentleness, God's goodness, the faith that comes, and self-control. 
My friend, if there's no fruit, there's no union. If the Spirit of God does not lead you toward fruitfulness, you don't have a relationship with the Spirit of God. He brings forth fruit. Our union with Jesus Christ results in fruit. We have come into a a permanent, eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it produces fruit. Look at chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time of the things of now which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now... You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification, holiness, and its end, eternal life. What does that fruit look like? Well, the fruit of the Spirit that I just mentioned from Galatians 5. We're going to get more into it in Romans chapter 8. You can look up later in James chapter 3. It's the wisdom from heaven. You can look in Matthew chapter 5 and and listen to the way that Jesus describes the attitudes of of God's people. You could hear those fruitful endeavors. As we move a little further, fourth point for this morning, before our union with Christ, the law aroused our sinful passions. Look at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Instead of fruit for God, fruit for death. But this is before. He says, while we were living in the flesh. In the flesh is the key term. In the flesh, key phrase. The law does not arouse sinful passions in the Spirit. The law does not arouse sinful passions when we're in the Spirit. The law of God is not grievous to the believer in Jesus Christ. We want to obey. We want to do what God has declared In the flesh, it aroused sinful passions. In the spirit, we see God's way. It's a completely different concept. Thomas Schreiner said, it is the law without the spirit that inevitably produces sin. Final point for this morning. After our union with Christ, we serve by the spirit. Verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in, a, in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In the discussion of being dead to sin, sin no longer is our master. Paul said that we now walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Now in this discussion about being dead to the law, we no longer have sin or have the law as our master. Paul says that we serve in the new way of the spirit, newness of life, new way of the spirit. You see the parallelism? He's using the same kind of argumentation for the, our severance from sin and our severance from death to our severance with the law. Ultimately, we are seeing that God is telling us that the flesh is no help in preventing sin. But now he's telling us that the law is no help in preventing sin. Well, what helps? 
What else then? If, if I can't do it, and God's law can't do it, what do I do? I, I feel helpless. And this is Paul's testimony. Look at verse 24 of Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who, who will deliver me from this body of death? This helplessness is only ours when we try to defeat sin and death without the Spirit of God. We will feel utterly helpless if we try to do this without the reign of God's grace. But the Gospel breaks the power of sin. The Gospel breaks the power of death. And the Gospel breaks the power of the law. This is how we are set free. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. The Gospel must be preached because the Gospel demonstrates God's grace. And it comes with the power of God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enables us to walk in newness of life. It's the new way of the Spirit. This is why Paul has been leading toward this from the beginning of Romans. from Right from the beginning. So my question for me and you is have we been living in the Spirit? Have we been living in the Spirit? Have you experienced the fruitfulness of the Spirit? Freedom. Freedom from sin and bondage. Freedom from sin's power. Have you sensed that the law is not a tormentor, but a friend? A friend that led you to understand that you needed a Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you looked upon the law in condemning you as someone that did the the nicest thing that someone could do? Reveal your utter weakness? Reveal your utter sinfulness? Reveal your desperate need for God's solution who is Jesus Christ. The law, the law has a great purpose for us. The law is good. It reveals my sin. It arouses my sin when I'm in the flesh. It awakens sin when I'm in my flesh. But when I'm in the Spirit, I don't have to live by the old written code. I live the new way of the Spirit. Remember I mentioned the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. He doesn't stop there. He says, against such there is no law. Why? I don't need a law. Because the law of the Spirit is working in me and the law of Christ is fulfilled in me. I will love my neighbor as myself. I will bear my brother's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Because the Spirit is doing it but I must sense my need. And the law does that before our salvation. And sometimes the law even has that same function in certain ways 
after our salvation when I feel quite fine about myself and I feel like, oh, everything's going just fine, but then I see evidence of my transgression. I say, oh, oh Lord, I know this is not the fruit that the Spirit brings. The Spirit brings other fruit. This fruit is the fruit of my old man. Oh Lord, I see my sin. I confess my sin. I turn afresh to the Lord, not for salvation, that's already taken care of, but for fellowship and the power of the reign of grace. The lordship of grace. The lordship of God himself through his spirit who dwells in me. We need this, brothers and sisters. It's been a, it's been a, a battle this morning going through this concept, getting this background, understanding what Paul's been leading to. But don't miss the big idea. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has united you to another, that is the one who raised, was raised from the dead, so that you and I might bear fruit for God as we live in the new way of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We want you. We want you to work in us produce fruit in us, that we might glorify your name, resemble your image, and testify of this glorious gospel, the gospel that we stand amazed as we behold. Help us to declare it in our speech and help us to demonstrate it in our lives by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.